So uh, my name is Ben Rogers, and this year I'm going to be talking to you guys about the esophageal. It was it was nice of Helen, I guess, to call it esophageal topics, which I guess gives me free reign to talk about literally anything I want, yeah. anytime. So I'm going to talk to you guys about things like esophageal motility, reflux, Barrett's esophagus. I hope if I have enough space, and esophageal adenocarcinoma will be in there too. So I look forward to it. Um, as you guys heard, I really would love to be interrupted. If you guys have any questions, if I'm talking too fast, if this is too off topic or whatever, you guys can tell me and we can back up. And I would love to make sure that uh, everybody feels happy about esophageal disorders, uh, at least at a perfunctory level. Uh, the other thing is, is that, um, you know, everyone who comes to my clinic thinks that there's some sort of magical treatment and they want to hear uh, about how to how to manage patients with reflux, um, I think that the that's the least important part of it. You guys already know them. You guys are. I mean, my mom can dose a PPI, um, so I don't focus on that, and that's for a very specific reason. Uh, I think that the most important parts of uh, of managing people with uh, reflux are just identifying the who the patient is. Um, you, meaning that, you know, is this somebody who actually has true reflux or is this uh, somebody masquerading? And so we're going to get into that uh, a little bit. All right. So um, you guys have general clinic, right? So you guys have a, a, a general internal medicine clinic. And so, I mean, I, I hope that by the end of this that you have an idea of at least what the, where the management should go with patients and that that part can be very clear. Uh, let me say, the, the, let me back up. The, the evaluation of these patients should be, and if that part's very clear, then I'll feel very happy. Um, so we all know where to start. And I guess the first question is, do we even have a problem with reflux? And you say, if we have PPIs, then who cares about reflux at all? Because PPIs are all I'm gonna give. And, Again, I said that to, to, to a certain extent, that's very true. Um, you know, uh, the, the PPI has changed the, the game uh, a lot. And, uh, you know, the, the, the question is, if I give a PPI to everyone, how many people are going to respond? Because I do think that there is this supposition that if you give PPI to someone, that they should just get better and never come back to your clinic if they have reflux. And as you will or have already learned, that's not the case. Um, we know that people with erosive esophagitis, meaning definitive uh, LA esophagitis, and we'll talk about what that means here in a minute, you know, if we see that, um, that those people respond really well, or if they have ambulatory reflux monitoring that's abnormal, that those patients do respond in a pretty favorable manner, you know, three-fourths, you know, four-fifths of them are going to do well, which is helpful, that's nice, but the problem is, is that if you're dealing with some of these people who don't have true GERD and you've given them a PPI, then you've basically got a 50-50 shot. And you can see how if you keep giving PPIs, more PPIs, or changing the PPI, or trying to give Gaviscon to someone who actually doesn't have reflux disease, even though they have the symptoms, uh, that's going to become an annoyance in your clinic very quickly uh, for, the, for both you and the patient. And so the question is, do I even start with a PPI? And I hope that most of you will, will take a step back and say, well, of course, you always start with a PPI. That's what we do, and so that's the way it is. Uh, the problem is, is that we know, that, or we should know, uh, that um, whether or not you actually give medications up front is going to depend on the person that you're, that, you're, that you're dealing with. And so I think that this is something that gets harped on a lot, and so I'll harp on it a little bit more. 
you have to think about the person in front of you and you have to decide what it is that they're saying to you and whether or not it's, it's something that is at high risk for even being reflux to begin with. And this happens to you guys a lot. So you get patients who say, I have reflux because I have this. Okay, because the internet says so, or because my dentist told me that my teeth are eroding, or because I have a cough and the palm people can't figure it out, or because the ENT people say I have allergies, or name it. It's all, I mean, it gets blamed on reflux, and so the reality is, is that if you become a gastroenterologist, true, but even if you don't become a gastroenterologist, you will have to deal with this in your clinic. And so the problem is, is that the response is completely different from some, for someone who has a typical versus uh, now, this is to medications, this is to PPI. The response to medications is completely different for somebody who has typical symptoms versus atypical symptoms. And so let's talk about what that means. Everyone always comes to you and they say GERD. Everyone, I, I, I can't tell you, that even in my own clinic, people come to me and they say, I, I have acid reflux. And they, I say, well, you have heartburn. And they're like, no, no, I mean, I have acid reflux. I, I, I know I do. My, this is what it is for sure. I mean, my, my mom told me so. And so trying to figure out whether or not, you know, they, they have um, uh, symptoms in response to acid reflux is, what, is the challenge that we're talking about. And so um, the, the number needed to treat really matters here. Um, so, Helen, am I allowed to pick on people? Or? Yeah, sure. the, the good thing about my picking on any of you is that I don't, there's no way you actually know the answer. It just is a way for me to have fun with this or whatever. I mean, there is no way you, I mean, you do not know the number needed to treat for these, but it's, it's fun for me to, to make you guys think about it in a little, so, so Helen, what's the number needed to treat for PPI, for heartburn or regurgitation? A range is fine. This is obviously going to be a guess. That's a really good guess. So uh, for heartburn, it's about four. For chest pain, it's probably about, you know, six or seven. And then for regurgitation, it's probably about eight. Okay, so those are the number needed to treat. So if you have hoarseness or cough, I wish I knew anyone, I can't know any, I don't know anyone else's name, so we're just going to start this way. Number needed to treat for cough. With PPI. PPI. Okay, we're going to, we'll ask the whole section. This is like uh, Price is Right. <laughs> he just gave a one, that's like $1. He bet one dollar. Forty-eight. Eight. Eight. You went lower. Lower the fifty cents. I like it. Fifty cents. I like it. Okay. All right. Now we're cooking. All right. We went the other way. Ninety. Okay. So in, in order to in order to treat somebody with PPI effectively who has these atypical symptoms, you've got to go way up. So if someone says to you, I have hoarseness or whatever it is, you've got to think, now I'm not saying that they don't have hypersensitivity to reflux. I'm not saying that reflux isn't changing their mucosal lining, that, that any of these things aren't, aren't possible. What I'm telling you is that that's not going to be an effective treatment for the vast majority of your patients. So you better think about something else. The other thing is, all right, so let's keep going then. What percentage of people, if you just take people off the street and you have you have an otolaryngologist look at them and, and decide whether or not they have findings consistent with reflux. Yeah, far as we don't tell, I said this. But so what percentage of people, and I think we're down here, what percentage of people will have an abnormal finding just by the scope from, from them? 
Oh yeah. No. <laughs> Whichever. That's fine. We'll go that way. Okay, all right. You guys are, you got to get aggressive with these numbers. All right. 92. 92. 92. So 92%. So the problem is, is it, and in fact, I, you know, I was in the, with, without symptoms, I was, in, I was in my primary care physician's office and he was checking me out and he said, the back of your throat's a little red. I think you have reflux. And it's like, maybe, you know, I guess, okay. Like, you know, are you going to give me a, PPI, which they, they, you know, they, they do work. But anyway, but the point is, is that these things are very nonspecific. So you have to think about who it is that you're dealing with. So if you have heartburn or regurgitation, it's eight weeks, okay? So chest pain, it used to be this thing, and this is about to be updated. So a lot of this comes from the, like, the Lyon consensus, okay? So this is a document that was first published in 2016, and um, they're about to update it. It's, a, it's not released, so this is still current, but in about two maybe less, a month or two, this is not going to be current anymore. So you used to have to think about chest pain a little bit differently, but now chest pain is going to be lumped with the other, so, because it does respond to PPI. So you have to make sure that it's not, the heart is more important, let's be honest, so you have to make sure it's not the heart. But once it's not the heart, you can go ahead and, and start looking into this. So you give them a PPI. Okay, so now you've got atypical, and then we say upfront testing. So what does upfront testing even mean? Okay, upfront testing is ambulatory reflux monitoring, which is a wireless or a wire-based pH monitor or pH impedance combined monitoring. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. But now you've got this person in clinic. So now let's rewind a little bit. Okay, so now we've got, what we've got here is you've got these groups of people. Okay, and actually, so now I even made it easier. So now you've only got two. Is there a pointer? Today is a not working day. Is it the one in the middle, right? The one that looks like it's supposed to be a light? It's more often not. Yeah. So now we've made it even easier. Now I'm going to tell you that that side and this side, okay? Heartburn, regurgitation, chest pain is typical. Everything else is atypical. It's even easier. So now you're going to give them a PPI or test, okay? So now you've given someone a PPI, okay? And if they respond, it's, it is very important to wean down. So this is outside the scope of the lecture, but keep in mind that no one needs a drug that they don't need, okay? PPIs are the same. The dementia thing is not real. The kidney failure, probably not real, okay? Osteoporosis, there seems to be an osteoporosis link. So if you've got you know, women of a certain age, you need to be thinking about, do you need to supplement? Can I get them off? Do they need this medication at all? And certainly uh, you know, think about you know, how badly they need that medication. Uh, and then C. diff, the rates are increased, hypomagnesemia is real. I'm just trying to rattle these off so that in service training exam scores, I think that that's important here. So these things are real. The other things that they talk about, the dementia particularly, there was a big study that came out recently, the dementia, probably not real, okay? Um, and also for you guys too, the important thing is, is uh, don't give omeprazole and Plavix together, use one of the other agents. Uh, I think sometimes they ask that one too. You always wanna be on the lowest dose of anything, right? That's any medications, that's PPIs. I will say, please, you know, one of the things, and this is a clinical management thing, if you've got somebody who's 70 years old and the heartburn is debilitating and they can't go out with their friends and they're worried about dementia, please don't stop the PPI. I mean, you, you know, there's been a rash recently of the stopping the PPI thing and, and sometimes it's a, the, the healthy move and sometimes it's not. But as internal medicine providers, if that's what you guys do ultimately, definitively, then, then you have to be a little bit careful. Okay, so if they don't respond, then you scope, and then what defines abnormal? 
So this is the LA grades. I mean, you guys really should, in my opinion, know this. LA grade A on the top left, uh, that's breaks less than five millimeters. On the top right, grade B, that is um, breaks greater than five millimeters but don't cross folds. Grade C is, is uh, they cross the, the folds. Um, and you can see the, there's a pictorial representation of what the folds look like, right? So they cross folds, but not more than 75%, and there's grade D. The reason that matters is that up to 15% of people, you know, if you just got on the street, somewhere between 7 and 15% of people, at least in a Nordic sample, had grade A esophagitis. So we're not sure what grade A esophagitis means. So that's not definitive. And so if they have grade A esophagitis, you can't just say, oh, this person has reflux. That's not the case necessarily. The reason we do this is because we want to know who's going to respond to advanced therapy, meaning if... If, if the person's not doing well with medications, you want to be able to say that they have reflux or do not have reflux for sure. And if they don't have reflux for sure, uh, then uh, you, you might have to go a different route here. Okay, uh, Barrett's esophagus is long segments. Uh, long segment is three centimeters. Okay, um, so anything less than that is, is not definitive enough for taking them to the next uh, stage in therapy, okay? It's not that if they have Barrett's esophagus, they don't have reflux, they, they do. Uh, these are people who are going to, to respond to, this is now management, okay? So you're thinking about who is going to respond to something more aggressive, and we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. But in order to say that this person has definitive reflux, they need more aggressive management, uh, you, you know, you have, to, you have to do a little more testing if they're not, they don't have at least long segment Barrett's, okay? That's what Barrett's esophagus looks like, you know that. And if it's normal, then you're still gonna to have to do testing, okay? So what is testing? So again, I promised that I would show these pictures. So this is a, so th this is either a, in the diagram it says pH monitoring, but this is what it looks like if it's pH uh, impedance as well. So what we do is we dangle a catheter down the nose, it sits down there for 24 hours, and we monitor uh, with pH only, obviously you get pH only. With pH impedance, you get impedance monitoring. I'm gonna show you what that means. Um, but the idea is that you, you get an idea of whether or not they have reflux. The reason that matters, here's another good number, so we'll go to, to pink shirt here. What percentage of people, if you scope them on a PPI, are going to have erosive esophagitis? Symptomatic people, erosive esophagitis. Ten percent, not a bad guess, so we'll move over. If you scope them off PPI, what percentage? Symptomatic people, you scope them off PPI, how many of them will have erosive subjects? 30%. So it's 10% it's and 30%. You guys, you guys did very well splitting the difference there. Um, so, and again, that's the other thing. For you guys coming in, the reason these are fun is because there's, I mean, who would, there's no reason to know this. Um, actually, some of my other favorite numbers is that if you just ask a gastroenterologist, does this person have GERD, and then test them, Stuart, I do know. What percentage of people who a, who a gastroenterologist thinks have GERD will ultimately be found to have definitive GERD? 50%. Not bad. I like, I like where you're going there. It's probably more like 65 or 70%, something like that. So the reality is you can't even trust your own opinion, um, which is exactly why I like these numbers. Like these numbers, like there's no way to know this, but also it's just kind of revealing of, the, you know, people, we don't have a concept of these sorts of things. So anyway... Uh, testing, and then this is a wireless capsule. This is called 
the Bravo. So what I do is during endoscopy, I go in, this little thing sucks some of the mucosa into the channel, you drop a pin and it stays down there six centimeters above the squamous columnar junction for, for, I do, some people do 48 hours. I think that we should do uh, 96 hours usually. And the reason for that is in the new Leon consensus, they're gonna say that two days or more on a four days is a positive Bravo, okay? Because you can have normal and then abnormal, right? I mean, it makes sense that we know that certain factors will bring about reflux. Um, and so it does matter, you know, these day-to-day -day variations are true. What if you, what if you miss them? What if they stop eating? I mean, there's long been these concerns and uh, actually one of the surgery attendings told me that 40 years ago, they had people either drink alcohol or not drink alcohol and that changed the way people had reflux. So there are these little things that, that modify um, the test. And so you have to, the longer the better in my book. And so um, for you guys, uh, the on or off therapy debate isn't that so much of a thing. I mean, really, you guys just need to know that some people are tested on and some people are tested off therapy. The only thing to keep in mind is, and there's no way this will come up on the in-service training exam, but most people, the vast majority, should be tested off PPI therapy. The reason for that is that we don't have great data uh, for people tested on therapy, so it's hard to predict outcomes. So it's just a logistical issue. If you don't know who's going to respond and how, then you don't, shouldn't test people that way because we don't have data. Now, this is important though. If you're going to do this, if you do pH therapy only, then you should be off of a PPI so you can see how much pH there is because that's all you're going on. So you want to know how bad it can get. Okay, so we've got some of the features here of uh, the difference, uh, you know, the different, the different features between the two. With the wireless, you can do prolonged. No one wants a catheter down their nose for 96 hours, obviously. Obviously, the wireless is more comfortable. Most people don't even feel it. Uh, you know, the pH and penis will detect non-acid events, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. And then, so I can also get non-reflux diagnoses. For you guys, that's supergastric belching or rumination syndrome. I can see those on this test. The cost is worse, is higher for the wireless monitoring. And then you have, uh, the, of course, the, um, you'll see here in a second why, but the wireless monitoring is much easier to interpret. The computer does it for you. And, and really, the, the metrics that you're going to get out of this, and we're, again, going to go over this in just a second, but the acid exposure times and, and the Meester score, okay? So this is what it looks like on my end, okay? This is, uh, we'll continue the, the fun here. So if you have, uh, does electricity pass quicker through air or water? Water. So the idea is that this is a measure of impedance. So this is actually ohms. So what you see is that the line, if hopefully you can appreciate it here, the line goes down. And the idea is that if the line's going down, impedance is going down, which means that there's water. And that's the whole crux, that's the crux of like the whole thing. So you can see here, the line goes up. And so that would be, to continue, air. So the idea is that I can see air, I can see belches, I can see when you're swallowing, I can see, you know, the directionality of these things tells me what's going on and when. And I think that, yeah, see, so you can, you can tell on the left-hand panel, you can see that the impedance is dropping and that it's dropping from top to, to bottom. Hopefully you can tell that the orange one, it happens before the bottom orange, red. And so that is a swallow going from the top of the esophagus to the bottom of the esophagus, okay? Um, the, the top two channels are up here, the bottom four channels are down here. So the top is the top and the bottom is the bottom, okay? And so you can see down in the second panel that I really wish this thing would work. So you can see in the second panel that 
it starts at the bottom and then kind of works its way up and you actually see a swallow coming down so that's a reflux episode and you can this bit is actually the ph drop so this is impedance this is ph so you can see that the ph didn't drop here because that's a swallow that's bringing stuff down this is bringing stuff upward and you can see the ph drops and then uh, here you can see that this one goes back the same way ph drops that's liquid and you can see that the ph didn't drop so that's a non-acid event the, the, the interesting thing there is that that could also be, does anyone want to take a stab at what the thing on the right could also be? This is way above your, if you do this, I would be forced to buy you a cookie. So the idea is that I can't tell whether this is volitional or this is something that's physiologically happening on its own, which is to say that if you've got a patient with rumination, meaning they eat and then shortly after they eat, the stuff starts coming back up, I can't tell if their patient is doing this on purpose. So we have cutoffs for this so that we know that if this happens a lot, it's probably rumination because really a certain number of reflux episodes right after you eat is just not going to happen. So uh, anyway, so this is what it looks like on my end. This is what a pH only test looks like. The bottom is the gastric. You can tell that the pH is below. This line is 4, pH of 4. And all, the only reason that matters is you can tell that the pH in the stomach is almost always below 4, whereas the pH in the esophagus only dips down intermittently. You can see how it dips down intermittently uh, below pH of 4. Any questions? I know, it's riveting. So this is what it looks like when you, when you get it back, okay? The things that matter most are acid exposure time and for outcomes, Demeester score. Most gastroenterologists don't want to talk about the Demeester score. It was created by a surgeon. But it really does predict outcomes, mostly because the Demeester score, in large part, is uh, predicated upon the acid exposure time, but again, outside the, the talk. So then you have, so, so now what you've got is a situation where, let me see if I, did I not get into this with, uh, I didn't do the slide. So this will be the hardest thing to follow, okay? You have now a situation where you have an individual who's been tested with endoscopy they didn't have anything if they had something you don't need this right so you've got erosive reflux disease that's one diagnosis the other three diagnoses in GERD are going to come from this okay this testing here so if you have elevated acid exposure time which you don't have to worry about but if it's over six percent and in you know per day acid exposure time that's abnormal okay so if you have elevated acid exposure time that's non-erosive reflux disease, okay? Non-erosive reflux disease. If you don't have elevated acid exposure time, okay, or a couple of other things mixed in, hiatus, hernia, reflux episode numbers, that doesn't matter, put that out of your head. Then we also have this, this, this the computer will calculate how many times you have symptoms, heartburn, over the study period, and it will calculate the probability that there is a true relationship between reflux events in your esophagus and your symptoms. And that's called the symptom association probability, okay? So if you have a true relationship with the symptoms and the reflux on this test, that's called reflux hypersensitivity if there's no pathologic acid exposure. And if there's nothing, no relationship between symptoms and normal acid exposure, we call that, that's called functional heartburn. I think the term functional is falling out of favor uh, and I don't know what the next iteration of Rome is going to do, 
um, but they're taking they're taking functional the word functional out of a lot of diagnoses, and I would, can only assume that they're going to do the same thing here. Okay. So anyway, so those are your diagnoses: erosive, ref, erosive reflux disease, non-erosive reflux disease, reflux hypersensitivity, functional heartburn. And the, if you think about it, the last three have relied upon this. And so if you're going to decide, you would have to use something like this. And hopefully you can appreciate now that the reason we spent so much time talking about this, or you know, at least to me, part of the reason we spent so much time talking about this is that if you don't have that stuff, if you, if you haven't done upfront testing, if you haven't done testing when you can't figure out what's going on, the reason we tell you to do that stuff is that it's actually time and cost saving to just go ahead and test the patient and find out what's actually going on uh, rather than continuing to do you know, BID PPI, you know, uh, and then trying six different, uh, you know, PPIs and all this sort of stuff, it's better to just test them and find out what's going on and, and, and get them what they need. And we'll talk about what that is here in a second. But, you know, you really want to use this to your advantage to figure out exactly what's happening with the patient. Okay. And, and so now the, the, the question is sort of, or it becomes, ultimately, if you think about reflux enough, is what are the predisposing things to, uh, to actually generating reflux? And part of this is because I think that some of this will come up on the in-service training exam, although, to be honest, probably you know, not a ton of it. But, but anyway, that we have these metrics where we decide how strong the lower esophageal sphincter is by, by this is a high-resolution manometry image, so again, way outside the scope. And so we've, we've, we've tried to figure out you know, these metrics that can predict, um, you know, reflux. And so this EGJCI, where we calculate the, basically the strength of the uh, creole diaphragm and lower esophageal sphincter, the, the complex, um, which is the esophagogastric junction, we, we try to figure out if that complex is intact. And if it is, that's, there's some association. There, there, there was a thought for a little while that if that's really weak, that they're gonna have more reflux. To be honest, that really hasn't panned out. The biggest thing, in my mind that, and this has been shown a lot and repeatedly and reliably, the biggest thing that, that predisposes an individual to me to reflux are things that increase abdominal pressure, like obesity, central obesity, but also the change in morphology. And so, all right, let's continue the percentages. I think the next in line would be, we missed a lot of people, but the problem is I know, I know Harsh's name. So what percentage of the reflux barrier is the crural diaphragm versus the lower esophageal sphincter. These are fun for me because you can't know, Harsh. I know. Of course, that's why it's fun. No one knows. You may guess yeah. 25. Ooh, still low numbers. Yes. Yeah. 35. It, it might be as much as 80%. So the problem is, is everyone thinks the lower esophageal sphincter is doing something, it stinks. And, you know, it, and as far as we can tell, really the major, one of the major barriers to reflux. And, and the, these numbers are, and the other thing, Harsh, is that this isn't, a, this isn't an exact science, okay? I mean, this is, I'm giving you these ranges based on, and I mean, some of this data is from like, you know, possum physiology studies from the seven, you know what I mean? Like this is, it's, it's not perfect, okay? They've done some three-dimensional high-resolution manometry stuff, and, calculated it, but I mean, this isn't exact anyway, right? But the point is, the curl diaphragm plays a big role. And so if you have a disruption, a separation, a hiatus hernia by definition is where you get a separation of the crua and the lower esophageal sphincter, then what you've got is a pocket of acid above that biggest barrier to acid, 
So the longer you get of Barrett's, the more acid you get, the more exposure you have, the higher acid exposure times you get, higher risk of Barrett's, all this stuff. It's, it's very well you know, delineated, and in fact, it's going to increase your risk of esophageal adenocarcinoma. So a hiatus hernia is a problem. And these are the different types of morphology, which I'm not going to harp on. But you can see that the percentage of, of abnormal, which is the pink, sorry, it's miscoded, but the, 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 normal, the high percentage of abnormal acid exposure times just flips, you know. So you can, it goes from mostly normal with normal to, you know, mostly abnormal with a, with a larger hiatus hernia. And then the other thing is what you guys might expect, which is that, and this is a complicated diagram to just say that if you have poor squeeze in your esophagus, you have more reflux. You have to clear it some way or another, and so that is true. If you have absent contractility, meaning your esophagus doesn't squeeze, you're gonna have higher acid exposure times. It's just a natural consequence. What's interesting too, and again outside the scope of the talk, is that you know what oftentimes with large hiatus hernias, we see people who have poor contractility, and it's a chicken or the egg sort of situation. Do they have poor contractility and so they don't clear, or do you have you know changes in the uh, and the function of the esophagus is in a response to long-term reflux. And so we don't know this, but we do know that you need that squeeze in order to get that stuff out. And this is something that comes up for us. The vast majority of people, so the reason this matters too is that, and if you ever order a pH impedance study from, from any center in the entire country, they have to do a manometry because they identify the lower esophageal sphincter on manometry. And, and so you're going to get a manometry too. The most important thing, because they, they do ask this occasionally, I think, is that the most common finding on manometry in GERD is normal. So it's completely fine to have a normal manometry. That doesn't mean you don't have GERD. Okay, and now here's the one that everyone sort of wants me to get to. Um, so the, everyone wants to know then how to manage patients, okay? And, and I'll let you guys stare at this, but the, the the problem is, is that this is actually how I do it. I will do everything I can, and you know, we have here at Louisville something which I think is nice, and uh, it's not unique, but it's not common. You know, we have this thing called the Reflux Swallowing and Hernia Center, and I work very, you know, closely with the surgeons there, and it's a, one of the more enjoyable parts of my job, honestly. But I think that one of the things we agree upon is that if you don't select the right patient, patients takes to, to surgery it's gonna make everybody's life miserable. And the surgeons have, are very good at identifying people who are at high risk of not doing well because that's, that's not going away. If you create a problem for somebody, you know, meaning they don't have reflux and you try to treat reflux and you give them a surgery and it turns out they had achalasia or something, heaven forbid, then, I mean, that's, that's a problem that's not going away anytime soon. And, um, so anyway, so this is the way I do things. They come in, if you're, I mean, I really do try to talk to people about what they're eating and how, um, and especially if they have symptoms late at night, have them elevate the head of their bed, no late night eating, no alcohol, no chocolate. Um, you know, are you drinking, you know, two, two jugs of coffee every morning? These things are true and they're gonna increase your, oh, I forgot to ask. This one's also very, we'll go straight to the front of the room here. So what is the major mechanism of reflux? No way for you to know this. It's called transient, does anyone know? Transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxations. 
For you guys in internal medicine, I don't think they're going to ask that, but if you do GI in the future, they're going to ask it. They ask it on every in-service training exam, and, but, but it is important. The thing to keep in mind is that everyone refluxes, okay? We all have reflux. So there's no such thing, I've never seen a single PHP study ever, and I've read thousands that don't have any reflux, okay? Unless you have, I mean, even for people with achalasia, eventually something finds its way in there. So, I mean, the reality is, is that reflux is a part of life. It's whether or not it's pathologic, whether or not it causes symptoms, which is another big problem with esophageal adenocarcinoma. We know that those people had to have reflux in order to have esophageal adenocarcinoma. 40% of them won't have symptoms. And hopefully we'll talk about that later. But, I mean, this is a big problem. But the, but the point is, is that, you know, everyone has transient esophageal sphincter relaxations. Everyone has uh, reflux. So the question is, how do we reduce the incidence and how do we keep it from being so bothersome? And the way we do that is by, you know, trying to keep the, you know, if you think about it, if you have increased abdominal pressure from, from central adiposity, then, you know, when that TLSR happens, things are going to come up. Um, sleeve patients is the same thing. You know, that's a refluxogenic procedure. Sleeve is, you know, generates some pressure there. It's, we, there's a, we have a paper about this. It's probably proximal, you know, uh, stomach pressurization in people who are abnormal. And so it's a natural pressure phenomenon. The TLSR opens up, acid comes through. So you either neutralize the acid, and you know the whole. There is a conversation about whether bile is involved and what you do in that situation. But in general, we treat acid, and so you either reduce the acid or you modify things that will cause TLSRs: caffeine, chocolate, alcohol. These things they're, they're known to do that. And so the mainstay of, of of helping that is exercise. Don't eat late at night. These lifestyle things again. I, I go back to it again. Alginates are very good. I, in my opinion, we should be giving everyone alginates. Alginates are what that you think they are. It's algae. And it does the same thing in people than the, potentially, this is what we think, it does the same thing to people that it does out in the pond. It just floats along that stuff in the stomach and keeps it from coming back up, okay? The reason I like alginates, it's Gaviscon with alginates usually. The reason I like it is it's, as far as I can tell, almost no side effect, so why not? And some people do very, very well. And for people who don't well, they, they don't do well. They've lost $15 on Amazon. It's not a prescription. You have to get it online. But I've had some patients do very, very well. Again, not everyone, but it's you know, it's like exercise. Who's not going to benefit from exercise? Um, anyway, so so if they if they haven't done well in a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 receptor antagonist, which H2 receptor <coughs> antagonists are inferior to PPIs, we know that as well. But you know, for, for, the, for the management of symptoms overall, that's the, that's the caveat I would say. For some things, they're just fine and you can try them. But um, anyway, so if they don't do well with the PPI, so now you're going from standard management to GERD confirmation using investigation, okay, then to advanced management. And what I would say at that point is that that's where you guys should leave off and refer to me. Um, I don't you know, or, or a surgeon or someone that you trust to, to do this management to figure out what's going on. Because the surgical management's at that point, again, you know, I mean, really should be tailored. They should have certain studies done. You know, really you should have a manometry up front and maybe a barium esophagram. Some people advocate for those on everyone. But then what they do is that they do either, so looking at the advanced stuff here, you can see they do fundoplication or magnetic sphincter augmentation or Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. And so if under application, they can do partials or folds, and then what they do is they take the stomach and just wrap it around itself. The magnetic sphincter augmentation is a bracelet of magnets, literally, and what they do is they expand and contract. They expand and let stuff through, but then they contract back down, and hopefully the force of the reflux aid is not enough to open that back up and come through. 
And then you've got Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, which I do preferentially for all people who are BMI over 35 and have pathologic reflux. And then you've got some of the other things like esophageal uh, incisionless uh, fundoplication. Uh, radiofrequency ablations are for Barrett's and injection of bulking agents are not something that I would recommend. That should only be done in a research setting. Uh, some, some of these things, if at all. And then so you've got the TIF, the transesophageal incision of fundoplication, which is where they go in and endoscopically do what a fundoplication does. They pull in some of the stomach and they go all the way around and staple it together and it creates this barrier to reflux. And then electrical stimulation of the lower esophageal sphincter is something that's been written about but is not being done very often here, not at all. Um, so that's sort of an experiment. You know, you've got some of these things that are experimental as you always will and, and probably should have. But. <clears throat> and then it's not on here, but we do have the pota uh, potassium competitive acid blockers that are coming down the pipeline, uh, which, you know, will it's being played out right now in the literature. They've been approved in Japan for 10 years or so. Uh, some of the literature is coming out of South Korea. I think that they'll be FDA approved. Um, they were they should have already been approved potentially, but they it's, that's a long story that I'm happy to talk about, you know, offline. But the but the the moral is is uh, I think the PCABs are going to be approved, and that will be another agent for people. Technically, if someone responds to PPI, you you can switch them within class. Meaning, if they don't do well with omeprazole, that you should you can try pantoprazole. I usually don't go that direction. I usually go to rebeprazole, which many of you may not have heard of. The reason I go to rebeprazole is that there are about five percent of people uh, have um, uh, SIP. Um, mutations where they where they are rapid metabolizers of PPI. Rubeprazole is processed by a different uh, enzyme, uh, or maybe through the, the kidneys, but it bypasses the SIP. And so some people advocate for genetic testing. I don't do that. I just switch them to Rubeprazole and see if they respond. And if they do, then I got lucky. So you can try Rubeprazole for that reason if you want. I do that a lot. Insurance sometimes won't pay. Um, I went through it as quick as I could. Are there any questions or burning desires to know about reflux? I got a couple, I think you're first. Once you got like some kind of control on people with PPIs, do you try to keep the H2 blockers? Do you try to just move them totally off? Like what's your strategy knowing the side effects of PPIs? Yeah. The the again it's tailored. So I mean if you've got somebody who's got Barrett's esophagus and symptoms and their PPI is controlling it, I mean, that's somebody who needs a PPI because you're trying to prevent that from progressing, right? So that's a way different situation than somebody who is, say, a 35-year-old um, woman who's already been taking PPI for 10 years, and it's providing marginal control. Um, and you're like, you know, it's like there's a family history of osteoporosis or something like that. I mean, I, it sounds trite, but I mean, I really do try to tailor it. The, 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 the answer, you know, online is lowest dose possible always on everybody, I, and, but it depends on who it is. I mean, some people, their symptoms are debilitating, not a ton, but that does happen sometimes. And so I just, I've had several people like that where they come in and they say, I was fine on the PPI, but I was having these you know, concerns for my primary care provider. And so, you know, we'll have a conversation and oftentimes I will just restart and we'll, you know, you can do a DEXA and find out how much risk they are. And there's a thought that it decreases absorption of calcium, right? And so you can, my understanding from the limited amount of literature we have is that you can supplement that. So if it's something like that, for example, 
that's a lot. That's a lot different. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do try to get people down. I try to remind myself to get people down lowest dose. I often will not switch to a H2 receptor antagonist unless they've had benefit from that previously. I, I, I you know, I don't think they work as well. What was, uh, what was the thing about dementia? There's no relationship between dementia and PPI. Like giving someone a PPI does not increase their risk of developing dementia in, you know, as, as far as we can tell. So if you've got somebody who's got rip-roaring heartburn and they've got dementia, then I probably wouldn't think twice. Were some studies implying that How many years ago was this? There was this huge... There was this huge manuscript, a series of manuscripts, when I was in fellowship, and that, that linked PPIs to everything. I mean, everything, everything, everything. Uh, renal disease, dementia, osteoporosis, you know, you know, uh, diarrheal illnesses, malignancy. I mean, whatever you could think of. Really, it felt like to me there for a while. It was like whatever you could think of was because of the PPI. And for the last five or six years, they've been kind of, you know, they had to dig down. There are a lot of articles about this. I mean, you can go hunting for this, and this is a, there's a lot of literature. It'll take me forever to review, but the point is, is that over the past, you know, half decade, they've kind of gone back and done longitudinal studies, and we've learned that, um, you know, some of the risks were, over, were overblown. Uh, dementia was one of those things where it doesn't seem the relationship was true. The confidence intervals on some of those studies were like, you know, 1.2, 1.3, which is, really not great. The confidence center, the odds ratio, sorry, the odds ratios were 1.2, 1.3. The odds ratio for lung cancer and smoking is like 10, right? The odds ratio for, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, the odds ratios for real disease is supposed to be of like three, three and up is where you say this is probably a true relationship. And these were like 1.2, 1.3. And this was 90,000 people, you know, really not well controlled for disease, you know, past medical history. and the other comorbidities and stuff like that, and, and a lot of gastroenterologists mind. Now, every medication has a side effect. No person uh, individually is immune to that. You have to be careful and get everyone the lowest dose. All these, all these things are true, but that, that, the original work that was done probably overestimated the risk of these things. What is acid manipulation on this Didn't hear it. What is acid manipulation on this chart? Uh, so, in the, the idea here is that there are certain things that, so for example, there's this thing called the left device, okay? So if you lay on your left side, you have fewer reflux events, which is actually counterintuitive to me. But I, I haven't had anyone actually buy it, but they, it, this thing buzzes when you sleep on your right side. So it, you can try to, or you can raise the head of the bed. You know, there are certain things that we think can affect how much reflux gets into your esophagus, and especially at nighttime, you know. So, um, yeah, yeah the, we, I mean, that part's true. We know that if you spend more time on the left side at night, uh, that you can reduce reflux events and acid exposure times and stuff like that. So you can try to manipulate the amount of acid that can see your esophagus. Can you go over the timeline for when you escalate towards like 
That's pretty slow. The time to do testing for me is pretty quick. I mean, I, I'm always in favor of more data points. I try not to do things that you can't undo very quickly. I have long conversations. I'm, you know, I mean, this is it's a tough one. Um, but uh, but I'll test somebody just like that. I mean, I, I don't I don't like waiting around. By the by the time they see, I, honestly though, I mean, part of it's my clinic. By the time I've seen them, they've often seen like four other people, and it's like. But, uh, but I, don't, I don't like wasting time. So I'll give them a couple, if they, if they come in, if I've given them a BID PPI, they don't respond. Sometimes I'll try rebeprazole if I've got high risk, you know, or if they've got a hernia or something like that, I just, I'm gonna test you. I'm gonna prove it's real, especially if you have a hernia. But I, I don't wait. You're supposed to give them eight to 12 weeks on the PPI to see if you'll respond. Okay. Sorry, I didn't know where this is going to switch out. But um, is there a particular amount of time? Like, do, you, do people with acid reflux, even with such massive treatment on PPI, ever like deserve in, like a screening EGD to look? And oh, yeah. How long? Like, you know, they have some massive treatment and are escalating. The, the, the ASGE lays out who to screen regardless. Um, and it's mostly for cancer, if you think about it. Right. Um, so, you know, you, you don't want somebody who's had long-standing reflux to develop cancer without, you know, under certain circumstances. The SGE, the ACG, and the AGA have slightly different guidelines, but it basically amounts to if you're over 50, if you're a man, symptoms for more than like 10 years, um, if you're, the people who develop esophageal carcinoma are, are white, obese men. So, you know, then you've got a spectrum of risk, you know. And so the and, and and that's sort of like codified in those, you know, who to scope or whatever. But if I've got a young if I've got a young person who responds well to a PPI, then you know, family history. Um, but if they're not responding, then I take a look. That's if you don't respond, and that's the thing. I tell it's the same thing. I tell the GI fellows, if you've got blood, I don't even think about it. A little bit, lot, I don't care. I'm going to take a look. You know, and so if you've got symptoms, I mean, I'm not going to keep scoping. I'm not going to repeatedly scope you and think that things are changing. I'm just going to take a look. Is there something really egregiously wrong here or not? And if there's not, then you're done. You know, that's sort of the way I play that. But if, you, if you're not really responding as, not, as much as we want, then I'll take a look. If you think about it, just send them to me. Yeah. If you're thinking about it, if you're worried about it, yeah. I would scope everyone in this room happily. Maybe after this lecture, I'm going to end up scoping a couple of people. I mean, it's propofol. You're talking about, you're talking about propofol. And I mean, it sounds, well, it's tough for me. From a, from a global standpoint, you don't want to scope everyone in the country, and you can't. On an individual level, I wish I could scope everyone in the country. We do know that having a scope reduces your risk of having esophageal adenocarcinoma in the future. Now, you have these intervals. You have these people who get away. But at least I tried. Um, and, and again, I come down to the fact, I, I ask myself, would I scope a family member for very little? And I mean, there's this like grade, right? Where it's like you really have to think about it for some things. 
But a scope, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd scope my mom every Monday. I don't, you know, I mean, it doesn't. So, I, yeah, I mean, you know, and you guys have done it. I mean, if you guys do gastroenterology, you know, my parents were like, oh, I don't have any symptoms. And what did I do? I, I mean, I, I was going to physically drag them to the thing if I had to, because that's what, that's the best we've got. Is it perfect? No. It's the best we've got. Well, that's what defines reflux hypersensitivity. The relationship has to be, it has to be within two minutes of the event, and if you say that it's within two minutes, then that's a real, we, we just arbitrarily said within two minutes is real. And if it's real, then it's real. And so we say there's a relationship between symptoms and events, and, um, and if that's the case, then we call it reflux hypersensitivity. Um, but you do have to look at what it is. You have to say, you have to ask yourself, is this really, a reflux event or could this be something else is the person just drinking orange juice and and so I mean you do have to pay attention to sort of what's going on with the patient and meal times and all this sort of other stuff but that's what we do we say we, we assume that um, and it, but if they click the button like crazy then there's not going to be a true relationship because there's going to be a million so you could you can't actually like cheat it by clicking it a bunch because then it's definitely not going to be positive. And it's going to say, well, you had a million that weren't related to anything at all. So that would be negative. So you can't really manipulate it that way. And I know that's not your question probably, but you have a, what percentage of people who have one have a positive symptom association probability? I don't know. That's institution dependent, I'm sure. But plenty of people have not, like, don't have any relationship. Sloan, do we approve? Are we done? <laughs> Sloan says we're good. <laughs>